Hey, everyone. Welcome back to On the Tape. I'm Guy Adami, joined always by my dear friends Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Listen, today we'll be talking about the tech rebound, SPACs, crypto, some beamy guy just sold something for $69 million. I mean, the world is going crazy. And later we're going to be going off the tape in an interview with the founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, the great, the studly, Paul Rabel. But I got some things on my mind I got to talk about. First of all, just so all you folks know, Georgetown University has now won two games in the Big East tournament for the first time, I think, in a decade, knocking off the top-ranked Villanova Wildcats. So I find myself in an extraordinarily good mood. It's also beautiful outside, so I'm two for Tuesday, as they say. But on the third point, I'm a little exercised, and this market has got me scratching my head. Earlier this week, we heard from David Tepper, and he basically assuaged some of the concerns of investors and traders by saying, look, he didn't think interest rates were going to go much higher. He thought equities were still interesting at these levels, if not very viable. Uh, And the market, I think, took his cues from him. Ten-year yields have backed off a bit, went from 165 at one point last week down to this one and a half level or so. Personally, I think this is just a resting spot. I think we're headed for 2%, and I think we're headed for 2% sometime earlier this summer. I don't think the market's going to like it all that much. A lot of people think it, it doesn't really matter because that speaks to economic productivity and economic growth and all those great things. But I, I will say to you, Dan Nathan, what's good for the economy in this situation, I don't think is going to be all that good for the stock market. All right. So, Guy, I'm going to come back at you and say it's different this time. In the last year, we have had $5 trillion thrown at our economy, $5 trillion. And when you look at the state of corporate balance sheets, despite the fact that we literally just had the deepest and sharpest, that's probably the same thing, recession in nearly a 100 years, and you look at the way corporate balance sheets are situated, you look at the way consumer balance sheets are situated. And again, I think you're going to say to me, Guy, we still have structurally high unemployment. So there are millions and millions of Americans who are underemployed and not doing particularly well. That is where this infrastructure bill that we're going to talk about is really focused on. But you have a situation where the better part of our economy is set up to do pretty well on the back half of this year on the other side of the pandemic. And we know that markets move ahead of that. That sort of activity. And I guess that's what we're seeing right here. And that's what guys like Tepper, that's what they see probably about equities being attractive. Yeah. And I, and I know D Moses wants to get in here and I'm going to push back and say, it's never different this time. And yeah. I know you did it just to twerk me and I well did, done. To trigger you, you. you did trigger me. I am triggered right now and it's not different this time. And the only thing different now is the bubble that they're blowing up now makes the 2008-09 situation look like a walk in the park, Kazansky. Danny Moses, you know what? That's from a walk in the park, Kazansky. Yeah. So I got a couple of things here I'll add to this. So the globe was freaking out a couple of weeks ago. What happens? You got the Australian Central Bank coming out a couple of weeks ago. They are going to buy some of their bonds. And then what happens last night? The ECB comes out. And they're going to use the pandemic emergency purchase program to go buy a trillion euro worth of bonds because lo and behold, the German 10-year God forbid, went from negative 60 bips to negative 30 bips, negative 30 bips. So it went up 30 bips to negative. We can't have that happening, right? But let me say something. And let me let me defend Guy and go after Dan a little bit here. So this has been a service-based economy now for years, right? So of course, when COVID hits, the first jobs you're going to lose are service-based. We're going to get the reopening, the rehiring there of that. Well, what's really interesting now is manufacturing is coming back. And manufacturing is coming back to a level hadn't seen because of the product shortages that we've seen as a result of the consumer demand for products that had occurred during COVID. So supply chains, I think, will fix themselves over time. But part of that will be in the U.S. So I go back to this is great. You know, the absolute level of where rates are is not the issue. It's the direction and the speed and the acceleration which they go. And for Pal said in a February 10th interview, I remember this, he said, you know, someone asked me, he said, what was the one thing you didn't realize when you got into this job that you realize now? He said, I didn't realize how coordinated the global central banks are and they talk to each other. This was always kind of the game back in the Bernanke time during the crisis. You would see kind of around like New Year's Eve. You, you celebrate first in Australia. It comes around in China. You make your way through through the UK and then it brings its way to the US or whatever the order is of that. So it's kind of the same way with that. And they're coordinated. So this was a global coordination to calm the bond market. But but if the growth is there, I don't see how we aren't going to see a run 
and we are a run on bonds and when rates moving higher. Thank you, Danny Moses. Thank you for jumping on Dan Nathan. And Dan knows that I did this on the CNBC's Fast Money a few weeks ago, but I'm going to do it now on On the Tape and you can okay boom <laughs> me as well. But there's something called the self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Dan Nathan, you happen to know what the acronym for that is? Dan, please. Scuba. Help me. Scuba. Thank you, Dan. And Danny Moses mentioned something. Exactly. Now, when you dive, I've never been a diver, um, but if you were to dive with the scuba apparatus on, you can go to depths of 150 feet or so in a short period of time. You can go down pretty quickly, but on your way up, you have to go up very slowly and very measured. Because if you don't, if you go up too quick, Dan, Nathan, what do you get if you go up too quick, Dan? The bends. The bends. You get the bends. And what's happened here? Well, yeah. We went down in a, in a very quick fashion in terms of interest rates, down to 53 basis points in August. But we're coming up really quick. Something happened in August. Maybe somebody saw a eel down there. Or maybe they saw one of those great white sharks or tiger sharks or even a bull shark, which, by the way, is extraordinarily dangerous in the sea, in the ecosystem of nature, Dan Nathan. But I'll tell you this. Rates are going up too fast. And the market's going to get the bends on the back of it. And yes, we've paused here at 1.5%. But everything Dan Moses just said in terms of supply chains and the demand on the back end of this thing, you watch how quickly prices go up and you watch how quickly interest rates go up, Dan Nathan. My baby's got the bends. That is a song from Radiohead. It's actually an album by Radiohead also. I get that. I guess the interesting point, that I think what you're saying is, is that 50 basis points in the summer to 150 early this winter is just too far, too fast. It looks like a straight line, that sort of thing. But on an absolute basis, it's off a very low level. Listen, you know, coordinated, yeah. Danny was just talking about the negative rates in Germany. I think our central bankers, however coordinated, you know, the global central banks were to keep easy money going here, our central bank did not want to see real rates go negative. I think that they were worried about some some knock-on effects here. And they, you know, ultimately, I, I think whatever you want to say, guys, they orchestrated a pretty decent recovery when you think about it. At this time last year, I would have told you that we'd be in double digits unemployment. I'm just saying, like, if you think about the sort of scars that we saw after the global financial crisis, but you know what? You throw $5 trillion at this stuff, you say that you're going to let inflation run hot for a bit, and you keep buying every bond that is not bolted down, and this is what you get. So what's been evident here over the last couple of weeks has been that Gold is losing market share to crypto for certain because we saw gold drop below 1700, come back up above, obviously settled in a little bit above here. But with the debasing of all the currencies globally, historically, gold would have soared on that and it didn't. So it's telling me that crypto and we every time we see Bitcoin drop, I'll just use that as the crypto that we're going to be talking about. You see it go from weak hands to strong hands, and it tends to kind of rally and base itself and go back to the next level. Listen, Danny Moses, I get you. But Dan Nathan, you mentioned movements, okay, and how they've orchestrated this movement so elegantly. Well, listen, I'm a fan of the Beethoven and the Mozart, and I know in all symphonies, there are a number of different movements. And at my age, you're hoping to have at least one movement a day. And I think we've had a few different movements, but don't think this symphony is over (laughs) in terms of orchestrating this thing to its end. There are many more movements to go, but I completely digress. In terms of what Danny Moses is saying, he's right. And lest you think I'm always negative and bearish and Debbie Downer and blah, blah, blah. We have talked about areas, and I know Dan Moses has some views on this, that have been doing extraordinarily well. Look at what the banks have done. Look at how well a stock like Blackstone that nobody talks about has done over the last few months. And oh, by the way, look at these resource trades, these reopen trades, these reflation trades, whatever you want to call it. Freeport McMoran, last time I looked, was at a seven-year high. We haven't seen these levels since 2014 or thereabouts. U.S. Steel finally getting off the mat. So there are absolutely areas that work in the environment that we're talking about. But lest you think these big cap, uh, high multiple tech names are just going to continue to go into the stratosphere, I say you're wrong, R-O-N-G, wrong, Dan Nathan. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, all these years, you still haven't figured out how to spell wrong. Listen, I'm with you. You know, Guy, you say you're Debbie Downer. You know that I play the heel on CNBC's Fast Money. I find these sorts of conversations interesting to be able to pull apart what what might be a kind of universal bullish thesis in, in a way. And so at this point, I think we're getting back to that universal bullish 
thesis, it's really hard to figure out what the bear case is for the market here, despite that movement in rates and despite that movement in inflation. And when you think about it, I mean, investors don't seem particularly worried. And we're seeing, you know, Danny just mentioned gold. We didn't even see gold tick up last week when the market sold off and it looked like the dollar was firming and all this sort of stuff. So it's just really interesting to me. Is this a good time for us to talk about just so what I would say is some unusually euphoric sentiment in in the NFT space and non-fungible tokens. I mean, we're seeing just, you know, as I'm looking at my screens, this is Thursday afternoon, I'm seeing Bitcoin getting right back to that Mm -hmm. prior all-time high at 58,000. I see Ethereum, which a lot of these NFTs are, are basically built on that protocol. It's basically back to its highs. But this, as you were calling it, you were thinking of Beanie Babies guy in the, in the eBay days back in the late 90s, but this was Beeple. Yeah, this whatever. Was Beeple. Beanie, so, what, Beanie you, you, Beeple. All right, so let's just talk about this real quickly because I know Danny's got a lot to say on this also, but the non-fungible token, okay? This artist named Beeple, he took a collage, a JPEG, as they say, sure. of all of his art and he minted it. Okay, he minted it back in February, all right? And he set up a secure network on a computer system that records the sale on a digital ledger known as a blockchain, okay? So all of a sudden now, we have the main currency, the digital currency, which is going ballistic. It's taking share from gold, as Danny just said, and people have gotten shit rich owning this stuff, doing nothing as our, remember our past guest, Josh Brown, I think he put this really well, that people didn't have to work for these gains or anything like that. They're just sitting in some digital wallet and they're just amazed how it's gone from 5,000 to 57,000. So all of a sudden now they're like, what other digital crap can I buy, right? That might do the same thing and I have all these gains. That's really what's going on in NFTs. But let me tell you, if you were saying this about ICOs, initial coin offerings in 2017, when Bitcoin was raging in that last mania, you would have been wrong because a lot of those coins that came in those offerings have done quite well at this time. I'm not telling you it's right or wrong, but that's kind of the argument that's being made for nfts right now if even if you think the valuations don't make sense so you're making fun of me is what you think because i called him people or and it's it's whatever it is well, his good name for is people good, you good called for him, him by the way him what was really crazy is how much it went up in the last 10 minutes of trading uh in the in the auction right yeah christie's i think christie's held that auction right dan yes uh for it and i think it went up i don't know the exact amount it sold for 69 million sure and i think it jumped for, <laughs> sure why not i think it sold from 39 to 69 in the last few minutes, which, yeah, that's great. 7,000 pictures taken over a period of years. Good for him. And I encourage you to go to Beeple's Twitter account and you could see what his thoughts on it. What did he say, guy? I, I can't say it on this. It's a This is a family show and I don't want to say it. But you mentioned something before, Dan, about main. So you said the main reason why. Well, you got me thinking of, of the great group. I know you know this, Danny Moses, the main ingredient. Lead singer, by the way, was Cuba Gooding. And their great song, maybe their only hit, was Everybody Plays the Fool. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Everybody is playing the fool. And I'm the one that looks like a fool because I don't understand any of this stuff. But people are getting rich on the back of it, Dan. All right. I want to tell you something. And here's a little market sentiment check. And this just happened in my household. I have two daughters. One is 17 and one is 15. Last night... The 17-year-old daughter has a balance in PayPal. She trades clothing, old clothing, used clothing. She she buys them on eBay and she sells them on Depop, which is sure. amazing. She arbs it. And she's had $1,000 sitting in her PayPal account. And you know what PayPal gave her the option to do? To buy crypto. And you know what she did last night? She said, I don't want this money earning nothing in my PayPal account. She bought $500 worth of Bitcoin and she bought $500 worth of Ethereum and that's in it. And then the 15-year-old daughter who's on spring break right now, she comes to me and says, I want to open this social trading account app on her iPhone because she saw it on TikTok. A TikTok influencer was talking about the stock market, promoting this app, and now she's going to open a stock market app. Danny Moses, does that sound normal to you when we have our teenage kids buying crypto, buying stocks because some social influencer like Starbucks or Ulta or The Gap? I mean, my son, who's 20, bought Bitcoin at 50 cents. I don't know how many years ago that was. And I made him sell it at $2. So he doesn't really speak to me anymore. <laughs> so that's that's one thing. So the answer is, I guess, I guess it depends on where on the scheme you guys, you know, you get involved. But listen, I'm telling you right now that the governments and specifically the U.S. government is burying their head in the sand right now. And this is like the nightmare for them. 
you know, the more that, that these things get involved in our commerce system, the less that they can ignore it. And they have to address this. Like, what are the taxes on this stuff, on goods that are sold? What do you do? What are the what are the capital gains? What if your daughter, you know, from a thousand dollars, it's all of a sudden worth twenty seven hundred and she sells it? Who's tracking the taxes on that potentially? Like this is a real issue. And if people start paying each other in crypto, which is going to happen, it's self-filling. It's already happening. It's yeah. going to happen. It's just harder and harder. So you think it's like a uh, money laundering scheme? No, I think it had, it started. Listen, the intentions of anyone out there that knows this, the, we, we started years ago what crypto was used for initially, right? It was the dark web. It was nefarious, um, you know, activity. nefarious activities, right? And we saw the first iteration of it. And, you know, everybody will always take something good and try to make something bad out of it. But that was the origination of it. But now it, it's, it, gets, it gets more validity. I, you know, if the Kings of Leon have NFTs now and selling front row seats and their albums and special albums, there is a value now that is applied to the crypto. And my biggest thing has always been, show me something that has value and then I can you know, stick it to something, like whether it was replacing Visa and MasterCard, whether whatever we do. And I think these corporations out of desperation or out of, or out of foresight or out of you know, defense mechanisms are getting involved now. And I don't see that slowing down. They cannot ignore it. You have to be able to tell your shareholders that your business is defensible to crypto. And if it if it isn't, you need to somehow partner or invest in it. So those are my thoughts on that. You know, I'm a big fan. We had the great Mikel Jolet on the show last week. And, you know, we went back and forth. The man is brilliant. He loves to read, as do I, as it turns out. But I also like to quote German philosophers from time to time. And the great Arthur Schopenhauer said the following, <laughs> all truth passes through three stages, Danny Moses. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it's accepted as self-evident. So I ask you, Dan Moses, in your opinion, where are we on this truth scale, the Schopenhauer scale in Bitcoin? What was the one in the middle? It is violently opposed. Pay attention, please. All right. I do know this. I do know that Mikhail Jolay has hired a bodyguard to protect himself from Dan after our interview with him, because I'm pretty sure that when he goes around the turns now, Dan just happens was, to be there. What a coincidence. A, you're, in, what, you're in California? Yeah. Was it, oh, it's a, was it a yeah. little was it a little too stand for you? Was, Is that what's going on? a little. But yeah. But listen, we can move on to this. You know, <laughs> pay, PayPal acquiring curve, BlockFi raised $350 million, right? We can go on to what's been going on. Tiger Global's get involved, more involved, I should say. You got, you know, we can go on and on on this, and and I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. Now, Uh-oh. now you just said these things go on and on, so immediately I think of the great Stephen Bishop down in Jamaica. They got lots <laughs> of pretty women. The great song yeah. "On and On." Yep. By the yep. way, little known fact, and Spencer, who does a tremendous job for us on the back end, Spencer Cork, Stephen Bishop was in the movie Animal House. Now, a lot of people say, "What was we talking about?" Remember when Flounder takes the guitar and breaks it? And the in the in the that's stairway. That's not Flounder. That's Belushi. That Be- takes whatever the Belushi. I'm, uh, Fla- they're all the same person. My yeah. point is this: that was Stephen Bishop, and that was Stephen Bishop's guitar, and he didn't expect that from Mr. Belushi. Anyway, please continue, Dan Nathan, because I know you have some thoughts on the Spacs. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I saw that the, I think it was the FCC made a comment today about SPAC issuance. I think that, you know, by next week or the week after, we're going to see 2021 SPAC issuance greater than that of 2020. And 2020, I think, combined was greater than the prior 10 years. And so I think the issue is a matter of disclosure. But it was really, I have a relationship with Credit Suisse. I'm a consultant to their technology investment banking in the equity capital markets groups. I have been for over four years. And they've been the leader in this space over the last few years, number one in the league tables. And they hosted a conference that I participated in on Tuesday. And they had, listen, guys, when I tell you the quality of investors that are leading this charge, we did three panels. We had Chamath Palihapitiya. Uh, we had Chin Chu, a former Blackstone partner. We had Bill Foley. Uh, we had Dan Loeb of Third Point. We had John Delaney, uh, former congressman and CEO of a couple different companies who's partnered with Steve Case right now. Um, and they just bought an AI robotics company. And then we had Dana Settle, um, who's the founder of Graycroft, which is a tremendous successful VC company. And when you think about those six investors, I mean, these are some of the best of the best, you know? And so, you know, all the headlines are like Shaq did a SPAC and A-Rod did a SPAC or this or whatever, but there's some real good quality people. Danny, I think you have a different view about the disclosures and about how the money's being raised and the velocity of it, right? And then really the question is going to come, 
are there too many SPACs chasing too few good targets? And is it going to be the retail holder who gets left, you know, holding the bag, I guess, once all the financiers and all the banks and everyone else takes their cut out of it and it gets to the public markets? Yeah, listen, you're just pulling forward the IPO market. It's not that different. You're obviously giving a little bit more away as the selling company to do it, which begs the question, why would you do that? Well, you're probably getting a little bit more valuation than you should get. However, there will, like I've said all along, there are great SPACs that are set up correctly and they're getting better and there's bad ones that are out there and we've seen what's happened to those. And if you're a SPAC that goes public and you and you uh, miss numbers out of the gate and you lose that um, that type of personality to the stock, then then you're screwed. And so there's immediate gratification of of some of these companies which are selling stock to the public markets and there's the long-term play. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, I think there's plenty of criticism for this product. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the way that these come to market very different than the way IPOs that most investors are very familiar with, right? And the process that goes on. I'll just tell you this. I mean, I I generally am a big fan of it. I, I see it as an innovation. I can't tell you that I'm a fan of the fact that we're two and a half months in on the year and we've almost done $80 billion worth of innovation this is not i mean this is this is not an innovation this has been around for years no it has but i guess that what, what i would deem to be the innovation danny is that the ipo the traditional ipo is changing right and so we've seen over the last couple of years direct listings spotify went um, public through a direct listing we've seen a lot of other companies do that i think you're going to continue to see that I, I guess my point is is now if you're a private company you have three very legitimate ways to go to the public markets right and one would be the traditional one would be the direct listing and the other one would be a SPAC. And you tell me if you have a guy like Bill Foley and Dan Loeb participating on the pipe, if he's the Foley's the sponsor and Loeb's on the pipe, how could that be a bad way to come to market if you're ready to do it? And and, and really what it comes down to is evaluating the sponsor team, right? And if they're not doing good due diligence and then the companies, we're going to get to this point. I think this is more your big short sort of like view on this. We're going to get to a point where because the ability to give disclosures is going to jack valuations, it's going to get deals on the tape that shouldn't mm-hmm. be, right? And and we're just, we haven't seen that yet. There was a right, couple last year. Yeah, right. we're still early on that. Uh, guy, why don't you put a button on it? Because listen, I'm generally in favor of this is a capital markets working, right? Um, But I guess the point is, is that if we see some magnificent blowups, it's going to change very quickly. No, this is the markets working, no question about it. But this comes back to, in my opinion, and you're going to boomer me again, but this all comes back to the fact that the system's been flooded with money and everybody's looking for a reaction. So all the horses are in the starting gate right now raring to go. And once they open that gate, they're off and running. And I think that's where we are now. Now it's about velocity of money. They've been trying to get the velocity of money going and they haven't been able to do it. You're starting to see it now. And once that velocity turns on, once that spigot is on, they're going to be chasing all different things and you're going to watch how fast prices go up. And that's manifesting itself in these SPACs. You can't tell me that people, you know, for every 10 SPACs, and I'm spitballing here, Dan, you know better than I do, but for every 10 SPACs, there's probably one target. By definition, supply and demand, I took that course one day in college, prices are going to go higher. And that, to me, is an unhealthy brew. Not today, not in the month of March, but as we move forward into the summer months, mark my words, Danny Moses, this is going to come. This is a sort of Damocles that's hanging over the market. Yeah, listen, it's a lot of supply that's out there. And you're going to see we're just beginning. And so let's anniversary a little bit of this stuff from giving. So if you closed a deal in 2020, you gave 21 guidance because you were allowed to do that. Let's see how many companies start hitting it in a month from now or two months from now. And that's going to be the big issue. And then it depends on who are your investors. Were they just SPAC investors or were they strategic investors? So look at the boards of the companies. Look who the investors are. See if they have deep pockets and they'll get there. So if you haven't sold your company by now, if you're a private company, you haven't found a way to get to market, you're probably not marketable. I mean, that's the one thing I think, Guy, is what you're saying. The supply, the total demand out there chasing these few deals is there. And there is one that's been rumored to come back, which would I would say would be the end of the SPAC market if it were to get there, which is WeWork, uh, which is rumored to be talking to SPACs. I, I really don't understand in this market what's even left there. But speaking of WeWork and SoftBank, there was another SoftBank uh, investment um, that they're involved in called Greensill. Greensill is, was founded by Lex Greensill like 10 years ago. He was a Morgan Stanley banker. He basically started a supply chain lending company. Basically, if you make a product and one of the pieces of, the, of that product that you need, 
you pay 100 cents in the dollar, they come in and they, they pay the supplier 95 cents in the dollar, and you think that the parent company will end up paying you 100 cents in the dollar. So you basically do short-term financing. And they've done this, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth. So over time, they built a large company. SoftBank was one of the original investors or was an investor in the company. They put in $3 billion, a billion and a half into the company, not to mention another billion and a half into the finance arm that I'll get to in a second that Credit Suisse is invested in. Um, and then and then they invested, um, I think, a couple hundred million dollars at the very end here before the company blew up. Greensill lent $5 billion to Sanjeev Gupta's Steel Empire GFG Alliance, which has basically gone bad. That's not what the company was set up to do. That is not lending short term. That's lending for the company to basically produce steel products over a period of three years. So from a duration of capital perspective, that was a mismatch. So the news that hit recently was that they lost their insurance. Tokyo Marine stopped providing insurance on these notes per se. And Credit Suisse had set up a fund that had $10 billion basically, basically pitched it as a money market fund to their investors. And so they had four green cell funds that their investors kind of invested. It was supposed to be safe. It's insured, all this stuff. Anyway, they've now shut those funds down. And so Credit Suisse, the reason the stock has been down is because they're concerned what the losses are. It's not so much the $160 million loan that Credit Suisse's risk managers didn't want to make to them late last year. They were overridden by senior management. It's this $10 billion of loans of what they might, what they might be liable for. Also within this, just to bring it back to SoftBank here, SoftBank kept injecting money because it turns out that Greensill was lending a lot of money to various SoftBank clients. So SoftBank portfolio was exposed to the balance sheet of Greensill. So they wanted to make sure Greensill could keep funding them. So that was kind of a Rob Peter pay Paul thing. You know, but SoftBank just gets away with it. And and SoftBank today is who owns 38% of Coupon, which went public and is up 100% today or 83% today, $100 billion valuation. That's $38 billion for SoftBank. So yes, their couple billion dollars are losing here may pale in comparison, but I feel like this would have been a front page story if not for the rest of the stuff going on in the world of this Greensill. And I don't think we've seen the end, seen the end of it here so something to definitely keep an eye on here. So, I'll, you know, with, with that rant, guys, I'll turn it back over to you and you guys can take us out. In the immortal words of the great Karen Carpenter, we have only just begun here on On The Tape because when we come back, Dan, Nathan, we're going to be joined by the great Paul Rabel going off the tape with Paul Rabel. Be right back. Paul Rabel is a professional lacrosse player and co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League. Paul has competed at the highest level in lacrosse, winning championships and MVPs collegiately, professionally, and internationally, and as a two-time world champion with Team USA. Paul was an early adopter on hybrid online trading service, socialnetworkpublic.com. Paul is a host of Suiting Up Podcast, where he interviews top athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers. Paul is also an investor in his own fund, Rabel Ventures. Paul Thanks for going off the tape with us. Well, Paul, it's great to have you here. And before we get into it, I got to ask you a question. I'm going to play some name association. So Danny Ferry, Victor Oladipo, uh, Derek Wittenberg. What do those names mean to Paul Rabel? DeMatha legends. DeMatha legends, which you are DeMatha. They're also basketball legends. And I watched a video the other night of you draining threes in the middle of the night, seemingly, in a parking lot from everywhere. I ask you this following question. Was that like an hour-long take, or did, were you just actually out there draining threes? I had a couple of commenters ask that same question, and if you look at the video, I didn't break a sweat. So I still got that jumper in me. I grew up playing hoops. I didn't play at DeMatha. I had a number of uh, back gym runs with Mike Jones, who's still the coach there. There was just a conflict between the basketball schedule, which is essentially year-round, and lacrosse, which starts in the beginning of the spring, and I went to DeMatha to accelerate my lacrosse career. It is one of the regrets that I have, though, is not trying to figure out a way to do both, although lacrosse ended up working out for me. Yeah, clearly. And it's obvious you can play the game as well, but I'll tell you this, and you can tell <laughs> Steph Curry. I mean, he holds a lacrosse stick like he's holding a hand grenade, <laughs> like it's the last thing he wants in his hand. But you obviously can play. So thanks for being here, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, Paul, I mean, you could have played any sport, it seems like. Obviously, Belichick, who I know is a huge fan of lacrosse has wanted to sign you at various times what's his current involvement with you in the league and would you have gone to try out for the Patriots and what why didn't you give that a shot so we sat down for a couple of dinners back in 2009 and 10 so it was right when my lacrosse career professionally was beginning to take off and I had won 
MVP my second year in the league. And then we had our international competition where I was with Team USA that following summer. So we had a conversation because Coach Belichick's known for finding really, I think, talented players that can build a team that keep him under the salary cap. And examples, Chris Hogan and Will Yateman, who have both played lacrosse or first passions with lacrosse, ended up playing for the Patriots. And we had a disagreement. He said that he would like me to go out for the team as a free safety, and I wanted to play receiver. But over time, it was like tough to read on, all right, we're, we're friends and we glean a lot of information from each other in different sports. Like that's one of the things that Bill, I think, is best known for outside of his humility. He has very little ego and he's constantly looking to learn, which is a rare attribute for people at the top of any industry. And I think he's the greatest coach ever in any sport. So that didn't amount to obviously me going out for the Patriots because we got to a place where he was like, hey man, I know that you don't play in front of full stadiums, but you're really good at what you're doing right now. And you're getting to lead a team and wear a flag on your jersey on behalf of Team USA this coming summer. That to me, and I'm speaking in, in his words, I'll paraphrase it. He was like, that to me is something worth continuing to pursue. And there's no guaranteed spot here in the NFL. And so we kind of turned the page on that. But at one point I did buy football pads and was having conversations with my strength and conditioning coach and we were considering it. Guy, Dan and I all had kids we worked with trading desks that would leave on a Friday at noon for Dallas for the weekend. And I was always enchanted with, hey, that's so cool. You're going to play you're going to play lacrosse for the weekend? He goes, yeah, I, I basically break even after I fly there and I come back. They pay for a little of this, a little of that. Can you talk about, and now, by the way, you can probably choose from many who are losing their jobs on Wall Street, but can you talk about the meeting that you had that I read about with the MLL commissioner and also uh, one of the heads of the MLL, I guess, when you went in to basically courtesy and tell them, we're starting the PLL. I just basically want to let you know that you're screwed. Or can you talk about how that went and then what led to kind of the merger or aqua hire, I should say, is what ended up happening with that league. Yeah. So there were a number of meetings that preceded the conversation that we had and said, all right, we're, we're off with the POL. The first was probably 2016, maybe 17, where the former commissioner, David Gross, was stepping down and they were on a commissioner hunt. And that was a, a hunt that lasted a year. And Mike and I went in originally and we're like, hey, allow us to help consider us maybe as a, as a front office management group. And that was the same kind of pushback that I alluded to with some investors who didn't come in early, which was what makes you guys think you can run the MLL? And we certainly like just didn't go in in a conference room and say, hey, we can do it. We had presentation, case study work. This is what we think we would do. This is what we think the business needs. So that was like a, hey, we'll come back to you and never came back to us. And then when we looked at the opportunity, which essentially now we have all this conversation in the marketplace around SPACs, SPACs while, while publicly traded, a version of this that's existed before is a search fund. Mike, who I had mentioned, had just transitioned from a fintech business that he was running called Funding Circle, which we got to Funding Circle after our gym co had led to us originally not being able to secure any debt, any instruments of financing back in 2008. So we did a small friends and family round. And then we thought, hey, the, the barriers to get financing are so high. Let's start a small business lending company. We did that with a couple of partners early before FinTech was a thing. We started a company called Endurance Lending Co. in 2011. And then when we went out for our Series A, we were acquired by Funding Circle in the UK, and they used that acquisition to launch Funding Circle in the US. Mike was running that business, then transitioned, wanted to start a new company, and was having soft conversations with potential investors around a search fund to acquire a business. And then Mike and I started having conversations, maybe that's MLL. Now, MLL wasn't generating any EBITDA, so it didn't really fit the profile of his search fund at the time. So then we started looking at, okay, there's a buyer build model. We went back to MLL on a number of occasions in 2017 and 18 to try to figure out, hey, what terms would make sense if we came in with overhead capital and we had a couple of groups at the time that made soft pledges to buy you guys. That was our preference. Building from scratch is really, really hard. And the delta was so big in what they were asking for, which is versus what we were, I think, generously at the table with. 
And then that actually came down from my perspective, just valuation methodology, which in sports, there's a fantasy play. There's an affinity play a lot of times. And if the economics don't make sense, you have a lot of sports owners that just like lick their finger and wave it in the air and say, this is what we're worth. So we just couldn't come to an agreement. But the more we dug in, the more we saw the opportunity for professional lacrosse. And that's when we started creating the build model of the PLL. And to your question, Danny, when we went to them in 2018, we went back and we were like, just giving you guys a heads up. This is what we're doing. They knew we were doing it, but their bet was that there's no way these guys can get this thing off the ground. And off the ground means get the players, have a network deal, have sponsors, have the right financing. And as an entrepreneur, part of your blessing and your curse is how ambitious and headstrong you have to be to take on something like this. So at the moment, I thought, how the hell could these guys doubt us? Like, we've got this all squared away. In hindsight, it's like, yeah, I probably would have doubted Mike and I too. And that's where they made their bet. And then their Achilles heel, which we've talked about before, is that, and I knew this as a player, we were all largely under one-year contracts. So how could we, in the end with sports, comes down to having the best players in distribution. How could we get all the best players overnight is what it felt like. It's because they were all under one-year deals. And that was something that, you know, in hindsight, the MLL should have done differently. I know somewhere in your lineage, Paul, there's an Italian in you. And this is eerily reminiscent <laughs> of the scene in Michael Corleone and Mo Green. No, I, I buy you out. No, you, you don't have the muscle to buy me out. This is fantastic. I mean, this is straight out of The Godfather, which as Dan and Danny know, I love. But, you know, so much of this business decisions is predicated on the sport, on, on the thing you're putting on the field, right? And in terms of lacrosse, Baseball is trying to change to be a more fan-friendly game. Obviously, football's changed a lot of rules. What are you doing in lacrosse to make the sport that you love even more fan-friendly? I know you talked about potentially taking face-offs away. You decided not to do that. A shot clock, three-point line, or whatever it is in terms of the game. What are you guys thinking about behind the scenes? Yeah, so there's a couple of things I'll address. One is uh, Godfather series is my favorite film. But number two, our lineage is is actually Lebanese. So we're second generation. Our great-grandfather came through Ellis Island. And they started a clothing company in New York, part of the family, and the other part moved down to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It was largely faith-based. That's where our parents were born. And a lot of the stuff that, that we've learned, if you think about Lebanese and Italian heritage through immigrants is, is just like blue collar work ethic and business building in the community. And some of our investors are Lebanese. And it's one of those things you, you share that commonality of, damn, the level of grit that you just wake up with. And it's just something that we've always had. And we see our dad who works with the PLL now. I mean, he was in printing and sales for 35 years. The guy was selling paper in 2014, you know, <laughs> like the type of loyalty and grind, I think has, has a lot to do with that background. Um, on the league side, I mean, there's just so much innovation. Uh, one of the questions we get from investors, and I think it's one of the most astute questions any investor can ask is why not two years ago and why not two years from now? And it's just like, it's it's basically digging into exactly what, what you're kind of alluding to, which is how does this opportunity come about? And, and am I putting my dollars in at the right time? You don't want to be Google Glass, right? There, there are plenty of examples of product that it actually works ahead of its time. And then you don't want to be late where, you know, the UFC was spot in and now all of a sudden you have these other groups that are trying to like peel off some market share, but are limited in the upside. So sometimes in our case, it is better to be second because we pulled a lot of learnings from MLL, especially things that, that weren't working. But why for us is that the barrier to enter pro sports was so expensive and so tall that it, it was insurmountable in traditional media age, which it was television. The NFL was capitalizing the era of television, baseball capitalized the, the era of, of print and radio. And, uh, and those mediums were expensive. And it was also complex because you either had the capital to try it, or you had to get a bet from the network with ratings. And so if you never had the capital to try, you could never show ratings. 
modern age of social media and new media and new technology to engage fans and create a more fan-friendly product and things of that nature, Guy, were that we, uh, we saw social media as being what television was to the NFL, to a sport like lacrosse. And to be able to touch an audience base that we know has roughly 10 million fans out there in the U.S., 2 million participants that's wildly underserviced, we see the, uh, the ambition and the enterprise value at the pro level where you can bring in revenue and highlight players, build stars, and capture kind of a sport in a unique way that's not confined to amateurism or NCAA regulation. And let's try to figure that out. So we've deployed all these different tactics. We got recognized by the Sports Business Awards in 2020 as the Breakthrough Sport of the Year because of some of that network innovation that we're doing, the mic'd up segments, how we're using social to tell the story of our athletes for the first time and in other ways. So, Paul, what is it that Joe Sy, vice chairman of Alibaba, massive multinational, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, what is it that he sees in your vision for the PLL? He seems to be, aside from just an investor, a pretty active participant in in just promotion of the sport and of the PLL. And now you've consolidated, obviously, the pro leagues, as we just talked about. Does he see this as the next big American or international sport, for that matter? Yeah. Joe's an unbelievable person. We're lucky to have him on our board. So he matches like a perfect profile for us. He has the intellectual curiosity that we talked about that Bill Belichick has. You know, someone who's a co-founder of Alibaba, one of the largest companies in the world, vice chairman, runs M&A. Like this guy opens up his calendar, not just for us in a helpful way, but also comes back to us with questions. So his intellectual curiosity the other thing is we talked about, you know, investors often aren't the best operators. And we find that the best investors often started their career as operators. So Joe has that entrepreneurial lineage where he can really be helpful. And what also makes him a match is he, he, he sees it from the purview of the entrepreneurs first, which is rare for a lot of VCs. And then number three is that he grew up playing lacrosse. So Joe's story is really unique as he came over from Hong Kong with his family into the U.S. and he didn't know the English language. He learned it through sport and that sport was lacrosse. And, uh, and he grew up in the educational system playing the game. He walked on to Yale's lacrosse team after he got in. Uh, educationally. So he's a brilliant guy that that loves sport and in particular has a special place in his heart for lacrosse. And now he owns the Brooklyn Nets and Barclays and has multiple investments across Jotai Sports as well as Blue Pool Capital. So where we are now is 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 basically actively business partners, but also learning from each other through different sectors within the sports business and sports media space. Hey, Paul, I just want to talk about kind of grassroots of lacrosse and with that the stuff that you do with your foundation for kids with ld and dyslexia i know you grew up with that and you had a lot of adversity and you overcame that as well but so dual question here as you're out in the community making people aware of learning differences and so forth are you also expanding you know lacrosse because having watched my son the last seven years up and down the mid-atlantic and east coast i can tell you the game is evolving as teams are flying in now from texas california Florida, Georgia, and these are big kids. This sport is changing by the second. So maybe you can address both of those questions and maybe talk about your foundation a little bit at the same time. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I started my foundation in 2011. It's called the Paul Rabel Foundation. We help children with learning differences through the avenue of sport and scholarship. So I, I grew up with learning differences. It kind of runs in our family a little bit. And I found on reflection, a lot of my confidence and success in the classroom came from my value that I brought to the field and confidence that I earned on the field and on the court. To be honest, it probably created more bullying proof around me than some of my peers that struggled in the classroom like me because I was this active and successful jock. And there's a lot of bullying that we could probably talk about that has become more pervasive and amplified and one of the major downsides of social media. And you look at teen depression, you look at teen suicide rates, especially among young girls, uh, continue to increase almost on a parallel trajectory of social media usage and habits there. So I looked at my kind of upbringing and how important it was that I had access to sport 
And so we started the foundation of first start lacrosse programs at schools that specialize in educating children with dyslexia because those schools really struggle for funding. And then we opened up a scholarship program for families who otherwise wouldn't be able to access LD programs to go to those schools. So that's what we do there. And it's, it's really important to me and, and my family. On the league front, the first initiative that we announced after the league came out in, on October 22nd, 2018, was our PLL Assist Arm, which is essentially our version of NBA Cares and a lot of other kind of community efforts that leagues work on and invest. And within the PLL Assist Arms is our diversity and inclusion group, as well as working with all of the nonprofits or most of the nonprofits, I should say, across the U.S. that help get sticks in hands and goals on field and transportation to kids who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford access to an equipment sport. So if you profile sports, there are barriers to enter similar to what I had mentioned around starting a league for families. And if you look at the largest and most popular sport in the world, it's soccer, 4 billion people who kick a soccer ball every year, not necessarily in a league, but they kick a soccer ball because it, it, it's really easy to play. And, and your access to playing comes with anything that's round that you can you know, use your two feet to kick. Now, uh, basketball is similar, but if you look at hockey, lacrosse, golf, those are sports that require some funding. And so if you look at our challenges in this country related to classism and racism and how the two are often conjoined, that leads to access in communities across the country. So we are actively looking to and investing in improving that access to a sport that is expensive to play like lacrosse. And that's a big effort for PLL Assist. So we view certainly the growth at the participatory level in lacrosse as something that is a credit to a lot of the coaches at the ground level and the expansion of lacrosse, especially westward. But how do we revitalize rec sports? How do we re revitalize and give access to the game that doesn't involve signing up for a club team? And that is largely a part of our sticks in hands and goals on field efforts. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And my question to you would be around that. A lot of times, listen, LeBron, to a certain extent, Steph Curry, I mean, these are the faces of the NBA. We can talk about football, but if you were to say who is the face or the faces of the PLL, do you have guys that you're looking to sort of build around the same way Adam Silver effectively is building the NBA around those few guys? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's two parts, and I had a chance to interview Tom Rothman, and he crystallized this in a way that you know a lot of major studio execs and screenwriters and filmmakers do well, which there certainly are gatekeepers. And at the league level, you could call it Adam Silver, or Dana White, the UFC, or Rabel Brothers and the PLL, just because we're co-founders and we're executives here. But in the end, the audience decides. And I think that's really important because pro sports, I remember Peter Guber telling me this, pro sports, it's not entertainment. He goes, it's show business, brother. And like that is as close to the film business, the movie business, as, as anything else. And so we feature our players and we tell, I think, impactful stories about their upbringing and their relationship with their teammates in the locker room and how they perform on field. But in the end, we, we, do, we try to do a really good job of listening to our audience and they tell us who they want to hear more from. And uh, I think that's where we make our decisions. And, and part of our merger coming full circle with Major League Lacrosse that we announced in December of 2020 is that, okay, all pro lacrosse moving forward is under the PLL. As part of the merger, we have access to all of the IP of MLL teams historically. Those players who were playing there are now signing PLL contracts. There was a player who was under, and one of the few that was under a multi-year deal with MLL. His name's Lyle Thompson. He's one of the greatest players in the world right now lives in Onondaga Nation, so he's an Iroquois Nationals player. They are the creators of the game. The inventors of the game go all the way back a thousand years before lacrosse was considered sport. It was a almost a religious ritual on Native American nations. And Lyle is now, I believe, in a place and has been in a place where he can transcend the sport, not just for his skill and his creativity on field, but what he's advocating and active in the community for 
thereafter, which is kind of growing the reputation of the game, the, the authenticity of the game, telling the story of the game. It's something that we're excited to get behind now that Lyle will be playing in the PL this summer. So, Paul, you just hit a couple things that hit close to my home. I grew up in Syracuse in Onondaga County, and it is the birthplace. I mean, it is the place where lacrosse is properly played, not like you guys did down there in Baltimore and the D.C. area. I'll just tell you that. Um, (laughs) But you also mentioned Peter Goober, actually. So my dad played lacrosse at Syracuse in the early 60s, and he used to tell my brother and and me that he was in the lacrosse Hall of Fame, which happens to be where? Where's the the college lacrosse Hall of Fame? Baltimore. Yeah, and your alma mater, right? It used to be right off of Homewood Field where John That's Hopkins right. plays. And so he would tell us he was in the Lacrosse Hall of Fame. And so one day we went down for a Syracuse Hopkins game. It was probably in the mid to late 80s or something like that. He takes us in there and he shows us a picture of his 1961 Syracuse Lacrosse team. And, and there he was. I saw him right there. So he was in the Lacrosse Hall of Fame um, for whatever that's worth. But here's one here. You know, you've come on Fast Money with Guy and myself, and we've talked a lot about sports and sports rights and distribution and the deal that you signed with NBC. Is is this the sort of thing now that you've consolidated the program uh, under your league? Is there going to be, are we going to start seeing a lot more lacrosse across the major networks? And what does it mean for your business to have that sort of media partner? Well, NBC is a huge partner, an integral piece of this. When we made our announcement on Bloomberg back in October 22nd, 2018, it was with that distribution deal in hand. Take another saying out of the movie business is that content actually isn't king, distribution's king. You can have a fantastic live game that nobody sees. It's not worth anything. So you've got to have the right distribution. And we're, we've never been in a more dynamic time related to modern media and the shift of media, or, or maybe not given that when we get out of this pandemic, we'll see how you know, the acceleration, I think, of SVODs and streaming platforms continues to level out. We believe that people will go back to theaters. I mean, we're already seeing that bump in China right now. They had, they set box office records, not pandemic records, box office historical records. We've been in this pandemic for so long and are presented by partner of the league, a title partner's Ticketmaster. They're monitoring this even in the PGA right now that are playing tournaments in tertiary markets where they're eligible to bring fans. And, and those tournaments are seeing fans come that in 2018 and 2019 never went. So there is going to be, I think, a pop post-pandemic. And then I think we'll level back out to where we were, hopefully in the good times of running sports and entertainment. I say that all because pro sports are a value proposition and enterprise value business because of their media company. They're an event business. They sell tickets. They're a major sponsorship business. They're a merchandise business now, which if you think about new tech, direct-to-consumer merchandise opportunity, just look at YouTubers and influencers, many of which are bringing in 2 million bucks a month selling their own merchandise because of how content has transitioned to commerce. And then the last one is their youth business. So how can, like the MLS built their academies, right? we have a PLL academy, how can we continue to generate not just revenue, but interest and participation around the sport through our pipeline, leveraging PLL IP into the communities, tapping into the markets that we're playing in. So there's a lot that goes into building a pro sports league. And we have to be really precise around where we're resourcing each of those categories, in some cases more than others. Sports used to be a ticketing business. Then traditional media took off. And then I think over the last 20 years, it's largely been a media business where media rights deals has been bucket number one. And then tickets got slotted if you look at the EPL or La Liga into fourth positions, you have media, sponsorship, merchandise, because there's a reason why Man United and Barcelona update their kits every year. People buy them again. And merchandise is a year-round business. Pro sports aren't. Those are seasonal. So I think that tickets, you know, it's interesting. It's dynamic, certainly a strong revenue bucket. It's dynamic because you're able to, if you fill arenas, sell more sponsors and get more eyeballs on screen. Sports are a FOMO property. But in the end, it not as much hinges on the success of selling tickets as it used to in pro sports. So all this stuff to say, and to your question around how we view media in a, in a multifaceted way, you've got to have your live broadcast partner, blue chip alignment. 
and we feel that way with NBC and we just announced that we're, we're going to be on Peacock this season in our third year with them. And then you've got to attach to other forms of media and, and do that well, whether it's social, creating originals, doing shows that potentially live on other networks as, as drivers of attention to the live games. So, Paul, I guess there's three mottos, I guess, that I read that you kind of live by. It's think critically, encourage creativity, and create like an owner. I believe those are the, those are the yeah, three, operate right? operate like an owner, yep. Operate like an owner, sorry. And you just kind of described all three of those. And the league has a great person in you that's behind it, and I think people are very fortunate when they can find something they're passionate about and turn it into a business, right? That's always been the kind of key to life and you're an outlier. I got to give a shout out to Ryan Curtis, who's my son's high school coach. And when you can pull guys like that in that are have the defensive mind that he has to coach with Andy Towers, I guess, on chaos, question for you. So if he was teaching my son right now at Westminster how to guard you in your prime, what would the key have been to, to stop you at that moment? Well, in my prime, um, you know, I or feel like time. an old Maybe guy Maybe you still now. are in your no, prime. No, 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 no. It's all, no you're, so. you're right. I mean, look, I'm 35 years old. When I was 25, I could do things uh, a lot differently. You're in your business prime um, now. I'm talking, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that it's complex, man. I'll say lacrosse is really unique. It's probably closest to hockey than, than basketball, but it's played a lot like basketball. And the difference between say myself in my prime and LeBron or Steph Curry is that all they have to do is get their shot off. And I say all like it's easy, get their shot off because goaltending is disallowed, right? So they run off picks and you wonder like, and I'll get to my point why in lacrosse to score a goal, you've got to beat the defender who's guarding you. A lot of times when you do, you have to get your shot off before a slide comes, which is help defense. And then in the end goaltending is allowed and because you have a goalie in the net who's kind of third in line to stop that ball from from getting from crossing the, the goal line. So it's uh, defenses in these games, I mentioned hockey, are, are more complex. They're team units. In basketball, you have a, a little bit more opportunity and guys are hitting shots from the logo. So the way to defend, I think, top talent in our sport is first try to make it difficult for them to get the ball. So you do what you see teams do to Steph Curry right now is just get in his face as soon as he crosses midcourt. And then once that's done, you're limiting his ability to create separation, slide early, get the ball out of his stick and have good goaltending. So there's, there's three levels that go into it. Outside of that, though, man, I'll tell you, like nobody's stopping you. No, I hear you. That's what I was going to say. I know what you're saying. Man, in 2014, <laughs> I, that's when I was feeling my best. I think it was hard to defend me. I was getting shots off. You know, it could take 14, 15 shots in a game. And you also, I mean, size-wise, you're a big guy. I mean, now guys are big, but you know, six, seven years ago, six two, two twenty. I mean, you're scaring the shit out of people. Just the FYI, and I'm sure you use that to your advantage as well. <laughs> Listen, thirty-five years old. You mentioned it, Paul, but that means you got a long life ahead of you. Obviously, you have a lot of work to do. You want to do with PLL, but you know, where do you see yourself ten years from now, fifteen years from now? I mean, you're a business person. First and foremost, I mean, what are your goals? Well, we got to continue to build this thing. And it's it's really uh, humbling and exciting to be on the show talking about what we've done up to this point, but we're still a ways away. And one of the things that you have to do as entrepreneurs getting into a speculative industry like this is raise long-term capital. And I think that's where some startup leagues have run wrong in the past, even if it's Ebersol's American Alliance Football League, is they ran out of runway. And they had to shut down. And even with the XFL, where Vince McMahon had pledged half a billion dollars, if you put all of your eggs in one basket, you know, that's high risk. And Vince decided with the pressure he was getting from the WWE's public shareholders and his board that, hey, maybe I need to focus more on WWE and this next media deal, which he did a fantastic one. And they just did another one with Peacock. So he pulled out of, of, of the XFL. So Diversifying our board, because you have someone like Joe Tai, who's one of the wealthiest entrepreneurs, track record. We talked about it, loves lacrosse, but Joe is active in encouraging us to diversify our board and have you know, more participants who can be helpful. Long-term capital, critical. This is a 10-year build. So you know we're in year three of it. We've probably been building for a year and a half prior to going public. And I'll, I'll be here for a while, I think, if, if our board lets me. And then uh, I, th I think I'd, I'd stay in media and sports for as, for as long as I can, or as long as there's opportunity to work there. I care a lot about media and its intersection to sport. 
And I think that media intersects into a, a lot of industries in a really unique way. And it's changing, but there's a lot of opportunities still. So Paul, you know, it seems like your family, this is a common thread through your lacrosse career, obviously your playing career, the support that they gave you, and obviously now in the PLL. And uh, I can identify that. I grew up playing lacrosse. My dad introduced it to me and my twin brother, Andy, who you know. And it's been a thread through all of our lives, through my nieces, my nephews, that sort of thing. It's kept us together. I honestly didn't think, I've been really pleasantly surprised about the women's game. I really enjoy watching it. And I'm really surprised of how good the PLL is. It's just a great product. I think you guys have innovated on a game that is a beautiful game uh, in, in and of itself. And I got to commend you on a couple of things. You were just talking about diversity and inclusion. You came on our show this summer from your bubble in the PLL on Fast Money, on national TV. We don't have a, a too many guys come on with t-shirts and you were wearing a lacrosse for everyone t-shirt. And I just think that said so much about you and, and the, the league that you built, the sort of people you guys associate. And I also think throughout the bubble tournament that you guys put on, you put on a great product at a really difficult time where we didn't have any sports. Um, and then the focus that you had, the BL movement, BLM movement was going on at the time and the way you talked about it on our show and from the sidelines of the game. So I, I guess take us out right here with just you know some sentiment about that and what it means to you because you told us where you're going to be from a business standpoint but it seems like these are themes that you're going to integrate into this business from the get-go yeah no doubt i mean i think that what makes sport really unique is that it sits at the intersection of all different socio-economic political religious sexual orientation beliefs and it is traditionally based on geo and when why that is is we all go to a game and support the team and the players that we like with the fragmentation of media with the fragmentation of politics today we've never been more isolated layer on covid we live in these bubbles that don't allow diversity of thought it's a lot of group think going on and athletes, whether it's dating back to Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, have a lot of times been very seminal in shifts in activism and cultural beliefs and recognition of truth and history. Now leagues are stepping up on behalf of their players and also kind of pushing outward of the traditional apolitical, because frankly, talking about human rights should not be and is not a political thing. This is about how our country was comprised out of the gates and how its intentions were. And, you know, honestly, historically, if we look at this country, we're still on a path to figuring out. We've never figured it out, right? Our country was built off of stolen land from Native Americans and free labor from the Black community. And then if you look at, you know, a generation from then, women weren't able to vote. And then white women were given the right to vote. And now women of color and women with disabilities and all different facets of, hey, my approach is let's not condemn people. Let's educate. Let's educate ourselves. Let's learn. Let's listen. And let's just try to be better. But with sport, you have uh, a community in the locker room, a community in the stands that come from all different walks of life. And to be able to share your story, I think, is, is critical. And it's a long game that I think sports have played for a while because the equalizer is being able to put a ball in the net and it doesn't matter who did it. But then when you peel back and say, oh, let's learn more about that person, we can learn more about our history and ourselves. Related to our end game is how we started, which is we believed if we could invest in pro lacrosse players for the first time, I told you guys my rookie wage at $6,000 in 2008, that the product would take care of itself. One of the things we, we talk about a lot in our boardroom is like, I'm not worried about the games. Like those guys are out there. They're getting paid well now. They have healthcare through the league and they have stock options. They're going to compete like hell. And the level of competition, our bet was that it would increase because now all of a sudden wages are important, which means your roster spot's important, which means more people are going to compete for that roster spot. And you're going to see guys investing more in their own performance that, never happened before. And if for the same reason we see Steph Curry shoot differently and Dame Lillard shoot differently than they did in college, college isn't when we're at our best. That's how it was in lacrosse. We're going to see 
pro lacrosse take this game to an entirely different level because of our investment in our players. And that was always the impetus. It required a little bit more capital, and that's why we got the long-term capital. But I think we've still, we still haven't seen a product in lacrosse that we will over the coming years that should take this sport to the next level. Well, the word great has been really it's taken to a level where everybody's great, but I will tell you categorically, it's been a wonderful having the great Paul Rabel on with us. Thank you so much. The generosity of your time and the thoughtfulness of your comments, Paul. We loved having you on the tape. We hope you come back with us. Appreciate you guys. As always, thank you. Paul, thanks again. We really enjoyed the conversation. And folks, just a heads up, we'll be having a special bonus episode of On the Tape dropping on Monday. We'll be chatting with ABC's Rebecca Jarvis, about her latest project called GameStop. I think you can figure out what it's all about. And oh, by the way, Danny Moses makes an appearance in this as well. So it's a must watch. And folks, and if you're listening to this in a podcast store, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at On The Tape Pod, and we'll see you next week. Next week.